a lot of people think it's great. They go, oh, I'd love to be a psychic detective. I'd like to do this, but it's not really glamorous and people seem to think it is. I think the important thing is, is about assisting people and wanting to help solve something, but then you might get too far involved in it that you actually become a target. Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado, and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound, and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of sacred journeys, spirit encounters, near-death experiences, angels, mysteries, marvels, and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary people reveal their extraordinary encounters. I acknowledge the Darawal people who are the traditional custodians of the land of Sutherland Shire in Australia, where I live and record Spirit Sisters, and I recognise their continuing connection to lands, waters and community. I pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to Spirit Sisters. I'm your host, Karina Machado. From a chilly autumnal Sydney, I'm happy to have your company today. Before we launch into the episode, I want to say thank you to everyone who's written to me over the last couple of months to share how much the podcast means to them. I'm really aware that I haven't responded to everybody. I do apologise for that. I read and cherish every message you send me, and I do plan to eventually get back to all of my lovely listeners. There's just been so much going on lately as the departure date looms for my journey across Spain along the Camino, the way of St. James. Have you done the Camino? If so, drop me a line. I'd love to hear about it. I'm travelling with my dear friend Sarah, who shared her story about her near-death experience in two episodes on the Spirit Sisters podcast back in 2019. As you can imagine, we're beyond excited for our pilgrimage and I'll share some exciting news about our adventure very soon. For now, and speaking of walking with spirit sisters, today I'm welcoming psychic medium Debbie Malone to the podcast. Debbie and I have known each other for many years. I first told her story in my 2009 book, Spirit Sisters. Gosh, that sounds like a long time ago, right? And she made another appearance in the follow-up, Where Spirits Dwell. As an internationally acclaimed psychic medium, psychic detective and spiritual teacher, Debbie has spent the last three decades plus assisting police departments around the world with high-profile missing persons and murder investigations. A student of the prestigious Arthur Findlay College, Debbie is a best-selling author who's often featured in the media and she's in high demand for speaking engagements and other appearances. In our interview today, Debbie shares the near-death experience that ignited her psychic gifts and casts back to when her dreams were taken over by two victims of the notorious backpacker murders and how this confronting situation catapulted her into her work as a psychic detective. We'll talk all about that today. So this is a great episode for anyone interested in true crime. For listeners who may not be familiar with the backpacker murders, this refers to Australian serial killer Ivan Malat, who murdered seven young backpackers in New South Wales between 1989 and 1992. Debbie's certain there are actually more victims, as she tells us on the show. Aside from her fascinating work as a psychic detective, we delve into Debbie's recent foray into channeling, her book Awaken Your Psychic Ability, her thoughts on the current shift in consciousness, and a lot more. Enjoy my conversation with my lovely friend, Debbie Malone. Hi, Debbie. Welcome to Spirit Sisters. Hi, Karina. So lovely to catch up with you again. It's so lovely. And gosh, we've been planning this for a long time. <laughs> we sure have. So at least today's the day, which is very exciting. It's very exciting. As I was just saying to you before we pressed record, I reread the story I wrote about you in Spirit Sisters, which was a long time ago. We've known each other for a long time. I published that book in 2009. And your story in there is called Hotline to Heaven. And, oh, gosh, I was just rereading it, marvelling about your life, Deb. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a lot's changed even since then. It's just 
it. It's but even when I look at yours, just seeing how things have evolved with both of us and how our work with spirits got even stronger. It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. And that word evolve is truly it. It's truly accurate. It is evolving and changing. And for me, at least, I find it's leading me to a very different place, you know, compared to where I was when I began this whole sort of inquiry. And I think that's the thing. Um, I feel that they above us, our, our spirit friends, have more of an idea of the map that they have for us than we do. And it's sometimes it's like we feel like we're walking along this journey, sort of half blinded, I suppose. And then suddenly they shine us a light on us and show us which way to go, which is really quite exciting in itself. Oh, I love how you put that. Yeah, they're shining a light for us and the path is being made ever clearer for us. Yeah, which is it is good. Sometimes though, it leads you down paths and you kind of think, oh, I didn't ever think I'd be doing that. And then, then you get a bit further down the track and you actually realise what all of that was about. Yeah, it's fun mm. and interesting. Mm, following the crumbs. Well, I would have read an introduction out uh, so our listeners will know about you, but why don't we just talk a little bit more about you. You're one of Australia's most well-known psychic mediums. The work that you've been doing with Spirit is so, it's so vast. It touches on so many different points of interest. And I know that you've had six near-death experiences. I think one primarily, which really kicked off your psychic abilities. I wonder if you want to start telling us about those. Yeah, of course. Uh, So I had my first near-death experience when I was three, but I, um, And then I had the next one when I was 13 when I had my appendix out and I've um, had to have a lot of anaesthetics over my life and um, that seems to have sort of set things off um, with my spiritual path. I used to see spirit as a child but I shut it down. My mum used to tell me I just spoke about it to get attention but I was actually terrified because I used to see and hear things when I'd go to bed at night. uh, My most vivid near-death experience was when I had to have a major operation my daughter was one, my uh, middle son was three, and my eldest son, he was seven. And I kept having visions that I was going to die before the operation. I even got a will made the night before, and everybody thought I was just being a bit overdramatic. But uh, I just had this feeling, and even before they uh, gave me the anaesthetic, I told the doctors that I was going to the light. And I remember them just looking at me and sort of going a bit pale and saying, oh, no, you are you going to hang around and see what we're doing? And I was like, I don't like the sight of blood. Just make sure you put me back together okay. But I didn't realise that um, I was allergic to morphine. So after I had the operation, I was put on a morphine drip and I went on this incredible journey. And it's it was, it was terrifying, but it was also very enlightening. And the way I'd have to describe it is I, I saw the movie uh, Contact about two weeks after I finally returned home from hospital, I was supposed to be only in there for three days. I was in there for six weeks and I was allergic uh, to the morphine. And when they put me on the drip, I had no idea. And so I, um, every time I had pain, they'd say push, there was like a little button that was attached to the morphine. So they just kept saying, well, push the button and that will stop the pain. And then, then I started to hallucinate and I started to see like devilly type things. I could see snakes and all these really weird things going on and then the nurse sort of said I think there's something going wrong so she um I said to her that I was going to the light and then she said to me oh no not on my shift there's going to be too much paperwork and she was kind of joking and then she went to go on a break and as she did um my heart monitor stopped and then she came back and she started shaking me to bring me back round. and then they took me off the drip but I had gone in this incredible journey and I was it was like I was on a roller coaster and I was sort of being pushed and pulled in all these different directions. I was part of the universe. I went, it was like I was catapulting up through the heavens and I was seeing beautiful constellations and I was it's like an astronaut that didn't have a suit on and I was seeing all of these incredible visions and stars and then there was this like a black hole it turned into being the tunnel and went through and the white light was there it was really pulling me through really really quickly and at the time there were other beings that were going up there as well and there was a lot of shaking going on and um that's where it was like being on the roller coaster getting tossed and thrown all all around the place and then suddenly i came up into this huge immense light and i landed in what was like a beautiful field and the field was had grass that was 
Oh, it was a little bit. It was a little bit longer, so you know, it might have been say fifteen centimeters high, and there was a gentle breeze, and it was the grass was flowing back and forth, and everything was more colourful than what it is here on Earth. It just seemed brighter and more beautiful. And then um, I looked ahead of me, and there was this line of people, and they were lining up, and they were going through like a gate, which I don't know if it was the pearly gates of heaven, but it was just like this little little gate, and there was like a privet hedge. So you could have jumped over the, the hedge to get in. And when it was my turn, they said to me, no, um, you're not allowed to come through. And I was a bit cross because I thought I've waited in line. And, you know, I hate when people push in front of me at the at the supermarket or the deli line. And um, but I said to them, no, I'm here. And, and I, I can see people on the other side. I can't remember who they are now, but there was these faces of a lot of people. I just felt immense love and joy and peace. And I felt like I knew these people. And they said to me, no, no, you must turn around. So when I turned around, they made me look down. And as I looked down, it was like I was looking down from the heavens down to earth and I could see my husband with my three children. And the two boys were saying, where's mummy, where's mummy? And he was pointing up saying, oh, mummy's not coming back. Mummy's in heaven now. And then suddenly I felt myself just falling and falling. And then I woke up back in the bed in the hospital room. The nurses and doctors were running around me and um. You know, all the pain came flooding back in again and I sort of came to and then thought, geez, that was heaven. I wanted to go back at that stage because I felt like I was in hell when I got back into my body with all the pain. Mm. But that was something that really, really uh, significantly changed my life. Would you say, Deb, that that was the most profound of your seven near-death experiences? That and then I had another one um, in 2000 and I think 2000 and... 19 i was falsely diagnosed with carcinoid lymphoma and i was told that i was probably not going to make it past the february i had to have all these tests and they um they weren't sure because with carcinoid lymphoma it's it's an autoimmune cancer and it can be in your lungs your liver your bowel your stomach and so i had to go through all these tests they weren't sure where it was but i did come up positive so i went to have a um a PET scan and when I had it I didn't know again I was allergic to the iodine that they gave me so they sort of gave me this injection then I had to, had to lie in a room in the dark and wait till they came and got me then I had to drink like a tracer afterwards and after they gave me the injection everything started to get really hot and I felt like I was on fire my heart was burning it went sort of down to my feet then back up into my brain and I felt I was going and I, I was that unwell. I didn't think to bring the buzzer and I was just laying there. Next thing you know, I felt this beautiful angel just lifting me up out of the chair and he took me up again up to the heavens and I was above the earth and it was like I was floating above the earth and there was all these angels around me. And I could see it was like there was, the sunlight was coming up over the earth so I could see all this light coming towards me and I felt I was floating there. And then they just said to me, don't worry, it'll be okay, you'll be fine. And then they put me back back into the room and then the nurse finally came in and I said, look, something's going wrong. And she said, no, no, you'll be fine. And I drank the tracer and I kind of came back okay. I was still not very well, but had the PET scan. And then the, the guy that gave it to me was pretty angry. He said to me, I don't know what you're here for. You're wasting my time. And um, then after that, he just sort of left me and because it was a Friday night because they rushed me in because they wanted to see urgently what the results were. And the hospital was closed in that section and I had to find my way down to the bottom. I couldn't see properly and for another two weeks I could hardly see. I was very, very sick and just, yeah, just in a bad way. But then when I went back and got the results, they all came back negative. So I was very grateful for that experience. So I think that was another little visit from heaven to Mm. sort of say maybe I'm here for a bit longer yet. You've got important work that you do and that you have been doing for decades actually, Deb, which we, we will talk about. So it seems that, well, I know this from knowing you and having written about you, Deb, but the near-death experience that you described before this this last one, and that was your, your latest one in 2019? Yes. Yeah. So the one before that, the one you described when you had the three young children, I think you were in your late 20s then. If I, if, is that right, Deb? Yeah, I was 33. Oh, 33. Okay. Yeah. So that one was the one that really sort of ignited your psychic abilities, if I'm remembering correctly, even though, as you say, you'd always had a connection to spirit as a, as a little girl. So, yes. yeah. So let's talk about two things. One is I do want to talk about 
what happened after that um, near-death experience that really sort of gave the, the rocket, <laughs> it really sent your, your experiences and your abilities firing off. But let's go back to when you were a little girl. Tell me about your first memory of spirit and also if you had um, growing up any sort of spiritual foundation or philosophy that was around you in your upbringing. Yes, I, um, when I was three, I had um, bronchiolitis and I almost died from that. So the first um, connection with spirit was when I was in the hospital. I was in the, the um, Camperdown Children's Hospital and this beautiful being, I thought it was a nurse, but she was, she was like glowing white and she was around me. And she, I remember coughing and I felt I couldn't breathe and all I wanted was my mum and dad, but they lived a long way away at the, t- at the time that this happened. And so they'd come to visit me that day, but it was during the night and um, this lady just came and comforted me and sort of settled me down. And then um, I was actually, I was brought up Catholic. So I always believed there was something there. I didn't know what, I was was still always being a bit of a sceptic. But when I had my appendix out at 13, then that's when things, I always felt, I always felt different. I used to see things around me. And I remember um, with the near-death experience when I was 13, I actually left my body um, my heart had stopped when I um, during the night after the operation, and I thought I'd been dreaming because when I woke up in the morning, there was a big oxygen tank beside me, and the nurse came in and said, "Oh, we're just coming in to check you to see if you're okay. Your heart stopped," and I thought that was a dream because I had been watching them running around in the room, but I was floating in the corner of the room on the ceiling watching my body, and I just thought that it was that I'd just you know been dreaming something. And then when they confirmed it. And then after that, I really wanted to find out more about things. And I remember going to the school library and Raymond J. Moody's book, Life After Life, had come out. So I, I read that as quickly as I possibly could and kind of made sense. But when I tried to speak to any of my friends about it, they didn't want to know about it. It, was, it wasn't something you spoke about back then. Mm. So that's, you know, that was part of it. But then my grandfather died when I was 15. And I was very, very close to him. And after he died, I used to see him and he used to come and visit me. And he'd sit in my bedroom on the end of the bed. He'd never talk to me, but he'd be like a see-through blue glow. So for me, I accepted that because he, was, he belonged to me. It wasn't like I was seeing a ghost. I was just seeing my cop. Then when I got about, to about 18, I had the feeling that um, I kept getting this little message in my head that, oh, you could be psychic and I didn't want to know about it. So I shut it down. But then had my first son because I was told I couldn't have children, but I was lucky I've got three. So I had my first son, then I miscarried between him and then my second son. And the miscarriage opened things up, but then after after I had my daughter, even things, because I started doing readings, being at, it's be 31 years this year. So been doing them quite a while. I used to be a graphic designer. Uh, yes, uh, you were a graphic designer. I remember that. And I think it's quite beautiful how your grandfather came to you and gave you comfort and you knew he was your person. And that in a way sort of is like a a precursor of the work that you would come to do for so many hundreds, thousands of bereaved people, you would let them know that their loved one is with them, is still there, just not, well, not just, but in a transformed way. So not, no longer in their physical. I think that's quite beautiful. It's almost like your grandfather, he gave you like a little taster of what you would do. Definitely. And I find the funny thing about this as well when my first son arrived, he was born on my grandfather's birthday. Oh. So I felt he was a gift from heaven. And then my second son was born 24 hours before that, um, but four years later. So, wow. yeah, and, yeah. so I felt like he was, he's had a big part of my life, even though he's been gone since I was 15. And so, Deb, let's go into sort of the crux of your your triggering of your psychic gifts when you began to have dreams of the the young women who were murdered in the the infamous backpacker murders, uh, and I think the dreams began in was it the early nineteen nineties? Yeah, it was when I was pregnant with my middle son. Uh, yeah, it started then. I um, and I was working at Fairfax Community Newspapers, and. At the time, the backpacker murders were massive on the television and, it, you know, it was just, we were flooded with it, you know, it was on the radio every time we looked at the news, there would be something happening. And I wasn't really into true crime or anything like that at the time, but I, I just kept seeing it. And then I would go to bed and I would dream the next thing that was going to be on the news the next day. 
So at first the two English girls used to come to me in my dreams and it was like they were pleading with me to come and find them. And then it was as though I was walking behind them. Sometimes it was like I was the murderer and leading them off into the forest. And other times it was like I was an observer watching what they were doing. But they were giving me little snippets of different things, you know, locations and different vehicles and what the, well, I think there was perpetrators. I could see that there was two perpetrators. Mm -hmm. Not always, not from the beginning I could see one, but then I could see there was another one. And then I started to see other victims because I had this vision of going to this house down, sort of down around the Picton, uh, uh, sort of down around that kind of, it felt like that kind of area. It was like a bush area. I kept getting, uh, there was a cave that I kept getting the name of, Morton Caves. And I didn't even know Morton Caves existed. But I kept being told I was down around that area. And that Morton Cave actually backs onto Belanglo if you go from sort of um, the Wellandilly Shire area. I looked that up later and then we have to remember that the internet wasn't around then and you know, yeah. mobile phones were only just coming in. So if you wanted to check anything with a map, you'd have to go and physically buy the map. You yeah. couldn't just get on the computer and look it up. And uh, then I found out, yes, there was Morton Caves and then they were showing me Oh, they showed me a whole lot of different things, but in one, in particular, there was one gentleman that they had, it was like he'd gone to this person's place and he was sitting around a bonfire and, and having a few beers. And then um, then I, I was like, I was him that I walked into the kitchen and then behind this old lead light dresser, there was all these Polaroid shots of all these faces on the wall in the vision. And a lot of the, the faces were the people of the missing. And at that stage, they weren't all linked up. But later on, it came to be that, the faces I had seen in the photos were actually victims. Gosh, that is extraordinary. So do you feel that this scene that you saw in the dream had actually played out or do you feel that you were shown sort of a collage of the victims' faces so that you could know who they were? Or do you think the perpetrator actually took the photos and had them there behind this dresser? It felt very real and I wouldn't be surprised if they had done something like that because a lot of the time especially um, serial killers like to keep a trophy of what they do, whether it's an actual item of the victims or whether it is, you know, having a photo. So I think it was a bit of both. Sometimes when you do get the visions, they're not always, they're not just simple. It's like pieces of a puzzle or glimpses. You know, sometimes I've I've worked on a case and I there was one, um, Marie, um, Mary Sarita Stroyner, and I kept being told that she was in fetal position in the dark. The word was breakdown and going through the National Park to Wollongong. And so at first I thought that she was, she may have had a breakdown, like a mental breakdown, and she was fetal position, you know, put herself in fetal position in the dark in a hotel or something in Wollongong. Mm. But what it was was that her husband had murdered her. She was in fetal position in the dark. She was in the boot of the car. And he um, was driving through the um, Royal National Park on his way to Wollongong and the car broke down. So right. all of the, all of the information was right, but it wasn't verbatim as how it actually took place. So sometimes, yeah, it, it eludes you. Sometimes it doesn't always come. You know, there's a couple of different ways that the meanings can be. Yes, you have gone on, as you just implied. There, you have gone on to work with the police in various capacities, although they never they never speak in public about relying or or having support from psychic mediums. I mean, it's such a it's such an amazing thing that you do, Deb. I'd like to just backtrack a little to to that time in the early 1990s when you were dreaming of these girls, and you know, and as you said, you were sometimes from seeing the the scene play out from the perspective of the killer, which must have been like just to to be dreaming this, and it was almost nightly, wasn't it, that you were seeing them, the two English girls at first? It was, yeah, it was, it was nightly. I was getting to the point I was too frightened to go to sleep because I knew that you know, um, the next episode was going to start as soon as I shut my eyes. I Back then I couldn't do what I do now. Now I can just be wide awake and talking to you and I can tune in and see things straight away, whereas before I'd have to be in a semi-meditative state or um, or asleep, and that's how I would see it. But, yeah, I, um, yeah, I got a bit too close in that case because and sometimes through working on that I could be the victim, I could actually be the murderer, so I would feel the pain of the victim's. But then I also got to the point where I felt the the murderers knew that I was there too. It was like they were watching me, watching them. So that was quite extraordinary and frightening. And a lot of the things that, that I did come up with, they, you know, they ended up being correct. 
I'll never say that a psychic, especially myself, that you solve a crime, it's we're more of a part of a puzzle and another tool that can be utilised to help assist police. I think it's arrogant to say that, you know, like you watch the show Medium and at the end she solved the crime. I really, I think that that's a bit too far-fetched. I mean, there there is an extraordinary group in America called Find Me and they have psychics all around the world and I was a part of that. I just haven't had time to sort of continue. But they have retired law enforcement and rescue and sniffer dogs and they work on crimes all around the world, predominantly in the US, that they will they will sort of ask people if they want to tune into a case. They'll give you a photograph and the last uh, GPS coordinates of the person and then everybody tunes in and then they send their report off to the head of um, the group and then all the information's collated and they've been very successful in solving many crimes uh, through using that. And it's all done, you know, everybody volunteers their time and even the retired law enforcement. It's a wonderful group and I wish we could do something like that here. It sounds fantastic and it also sounds like everybody's working together and retired law enforcement who perhaps at a time might have might have dismissed this possibility. And that is indeed what happened to you, Deb, isn't it? At the beginning when you went, when you finally, after having these these nightly horror shows in your dreams, you eventually went to the police and what happened? Oh, that was very interesting. Uh, to start with, uh, a friend of mine, she had a she had a girlfriend who, who was a police officer, so I spoke to her first. Then she put me in touch with her husband, who was also a police officer. And then I ended up being put in contact with the head of the um, the backpackers task force air. And then then they wanted to know everything about me. He wanted to know what my doctor's names were, and then they wanted to know where I was at certain times because if I knew about those things that I must have been involved or mm. so I could become a suspect. And then, and then they also wanted to know if I had mental health issues because why am I talking to dead people and why am I seeing these things? And then they finally um, started to believe and they just said, look, I want you to keep a diary and if you just write down, just write the date and whatever you see. And they said, don't think about putting it into order, just write it all down. And then they gave me... There was two detectives that would come and pick up the the diary that I would keep when I had enough information. And then when I was working at the newspaper, one of the journalists had been talking to him about it, and he said to me, right, we're going to do a story about you, and they gave me the name um, Julia instead of my real name. And then he said, right, I want you to pick the demographics of which newspaper you want it to go to. And so Fairfax Community had, you know, probably 30, 36 papers at the time. So I said to them, I wanted it to go to the MacArthur Advertiser because I knew that the murderer was going to be there. And it went to Eagle Vale, which is where Ivan Malat lived. And then after the newspaper story went out, his girlfriend, Shirley DeHughes, made contact with the newspaper and she wanted to meet up with me. And I never, I didn't ever meet up with her, but we did have numerous phone calls over the time and on this one particular day, she said, because she wanted me to help get him off because she thought he was innocent, but um, which was frightening, unless they didn't have caller ID back then. But she said to me this one particular morning that um, you better you better be careful, they're coming after you. And I and I didn't realise what she said. My, my second son was six weeks old at that stage. And then a man came to the door and I didn't have a, a, a screen on the front door at that stage. And the driveway used to be on the side of the house and then the kitchen window you could look out and my car was there. And I went to open the door and something said to me, don't don't open the door. So I didn't. And I said, who's there? And nobody answered. So then I went to the kitchen window and I looked out and I could see the reflection of a moon leading flat back on the wall of my house with all this wiring in caught up in his hands. Mm. And um, so I didn't, I didn't say anything. And then he hung around out the front for about, about an hour. So then I rang the task force and I said, look, there's something's going on. There's a guy out the front. And then I rang the electricity board because he was had a Sydney electricity car. So I rang them and I said, is there someone supposed to be checking our, our um, power? Because it was only the meter was only read last week and they said, well, no one's supposed to be there. And then I rang the police again. They said, just stay in the house and as soon as he goes, just get out of the house. So... He, he drove around the corner, I didn't realise that, but I got out of the house and then I stayed at a friend's all day and then yeah, we sort of had to go from there. But that was pretty terrifying. That's chilling, Deb. That's chilling. I'm surprised the police didn't come. Like they, they gave you advice, but they didn't come to, to see what who was there. 
No, they they said to me that they were if anything further happened that they would keep. Yeah. You know, thought about keeping me under surveillance, but yeah, that was that was a bit too close, and I think it really hit home to think, well, you know, this is this is very serious things to be involved in, and, and a lot of people think it's great. They go, oh, I'd love to be a psychic detective. I'd like to do this, but there's it's not really glamorous, and people seem to think it is. I think the important thing is is about assisting people and wanting to help solve something, but then you might get too far involved in it that you actually become a target. So, mm. yeah, it's a really fine line. Mm. And so you were involved behind the scenes with investigating this for, I think it was four years, wasn't it, Deb? Yes, and, um, yes. And, yeah, so even though the police never formally acknowledged you, you were an important piece of the puzzle and it did signal an important new phase in your life, which was the embracing and the acceptance of your gift. And and what a terrifying kind of baptism of fire. I mean, Belangolo eventually gave up seven battered young bodies and it was just one of the most horrific things, really, wanted to, to be involved in for you. So... An amazing sacrifice. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was definitely horrific. And I just, and I still think there are many more bodies that, well, you know, now he's passed away, I think only time will tell. But I just, I think the reason that I continued was the thought that, that, that there's some of these children that was, you know, that's been taken or someone's mother or brother or sister. And yeah, I think if something like that had happened to my family, I would hope someone like me would be able to help if they had the knowledge. And Deb, you went on to work with other um, with the police on other high profile cases. Claremont was one that you that was in Western Australia that you um, worked on. Was it a case then of you really accepting your gifts and being willing to to go where you were led? Yes, I was. Um, I was invited to work on that case through um, I was working with two other mediums, and I was doing it. A project called Psychic Task Force. I go under hypnosis at times for cases. I actually, there was two other women that were part of the team. They, they're not psychics, but they, they were sort of part of the production team. And so we um, did a lot. We actually went out to all of the locations where the girls' bodies were found. The other guys, they didn't really do any of that. And then I did an identicate of what I saw the um, perpetrator look like. And when he was arrested. He, it's it's very very similar. The hair's slightly curlier in my, in my identikit. But yeah, when he was arrested, it's him. And they even, they even did an aged image of him of what he would look like from then to now. And they put half of his face with my identikit, and it's perfect. Like it's the nose, everything. And I did work with some of the police over there, but it was hard because there's a lot of resistance in WA. I had a lovely officer that I did work with quite substantially, but then other people tried to block it. Yeah, it's really difficult. And, I th- and the sadness is, is that Sarah's never been found, and I think that that's really, really hard. And But it's hard to being me being here in, a, in Sydney and then that happening in Perth. Mm. I, I do know we went to um, one of the locations and all I kept seeing was those RM lilies, or people call them death lilies, the white lilies with the yellow sort of stamen in the middle. Yeah. And when we were walking around, I kept being drawn to this spot and I kept being told, it's here, it's here. And the guys are going, you know, no, you're wrong, you're in the wrong spot. And I said, no, no, it's here. And when we did this thing called Psychic Task Force, it was like a two-night event over there, I went down the day before and I picked the lilies and I set them up in an arrangement on the stage and I had three of them. And unbeknownst to me, some of the the task force officers came backstage afterwards and they said, how did you know to arrange the flowers like that? And I said, that's what the girls told me to do. And then they showed me the badge for the task force had the three lilies on it and that was their special logo. Oh, wow, Debbie. Yeah. yeah. So did um, did the girls come to you, the Claremont girls come to you in dreams uh, like the backpacker girls did or – have you had any other um, murder victims come in dreams in that way? Yes, yeah, so the girls came to me I, before I even went over there. I was asked to do it, and um, I was really, really sick of the flu, and I was pretty delirious. And then sometimes when I'm in that kind of state, I was getting so much information about what to do and where to go. So when I got over there, it was it was pretty. I had a lot of information already flooding through, which was useful, but um. 
yeah, a lot of the time they do come to me in dreams. There was a beautiful young lady, and to this day I am so, I'm so heartbroken that I never found her. Her family are the most incredible, gentle and beautiful people I've ever met. And I dreamt about her before she died, and I used to do these haunted Sydney tours Many years ago, there was a hearse that used to drive around Sydney called Elvira and a friend of mine owned it and I used to go and do, we'd do spirit photography and we'd go to all, all the haunted locations in Sydney and then I'd do readings between each location for the people in the car. And then the night I came home from doing a tour, I had this dream of, of sitting in, in the hearse called Elvira and I was at the lights, the owner was, his name's Alan, and at the lights, there was another car directly beside me. And it was a hearse as well, which is odd, that it had no roof on it. It looked like, you know, like a topless hearse. And the guy sitting driving was right next to me because I was in the passenger side in the other car. And I could see him really clearly and he had dark hair, dark eyes, and he just looked dangerous. I just, I just didn't like him. And then there was this beautiful young lady with sort of lighter brown hair and very a beautiful smile and just really full of life. And she looked over at me and then I'm looking at him and I was just thinking, please get out of the car, get out of the car. And then the vehicle just drove off. And then I woke up in the morning and I didn't think much of it. And then one of the, the officers that I'd worked with on the task force for the backpacker murders, he was head of the case. And that was the only re reason I rang was I thought, I'm not doing this stuff anymore. I don't want to know about it. And um, anyway, I rang him and because two weeks, you know, it's, it was two weeks after I had the dream there was a missing persons report and her name was Neve May and that she was missing. And so I knew what the guy looked like, but then I had to try and put all the pieces um, together of what had happened. And her beautiful family had sent me some items of hers to hold and I got a lot of information that it was arranged that I would go down um, to the Tunit area to see what I could see. And we did a lot of searching and I, there was an area that um, she showed me that he, she had been with. And, the other thing that I didn't mention, he owned a hearse, but it did, it had a roof on it. And the last vehicle she was seen in was a hearse. So she oh. had gone missing with this man, man in my dream. So he he was actually the last person she was seen with. And mm. when I went to Tumut, I sort of said to them, I wanted to go to this place called Blowering Dam. Never been there before in my life. Didn't even know how to get there. We started driving along and there'd, there'd been a lot of rain the week before and all the road was washed out. So we had to go a different way. And they asked me which way I wanted to go and I was just guided. And they, I knew I had to drive past an area where there was black and white cows. And there's only one spot in that, in that area. And we drove past that and she more or less guided me to the spot. And then we stopped at this, just at this part of the bush. And we got out of the car and I said, it's, I just wanted to be around. I said, I want to be around here. And they showed me a photograph. And we were standing on the exact same spot that a photo of him and her were taken with the hearse and was standing right on it. So, Debbie, let me just get this straight so I can understand. So you had this dream of being in the hearse, which is where you used to you used to work in the hearse doing these haunted Sydney tours. And you, in your dream, you looked over and there was another hearse and there was this lovely young woman in there. And eventually, if I'm following correctly, it did turn out that this young woman was a missing person and a, a murder victim. How did you put those two pieces together if you dreamt of her prior to this news coming out? How did you, it become apparent to you that she was a missing person? Well, two weeks later, they had a missing persons uh, sort of media report and uh, they actually showed the photograph of her and that was the woman I'd seen in my dreams and I knew then that what I dreamt about was real. Wow, and that's when you reached out to your contact? Yes, I did. In the police? Up, yeah, and I ended up, after a few months, I ended up going down there to try and see if I could find her. Okay. And so it's very interesting that the alleged perpetrator had a hearse and you were working in a hearse. Do you feel like that point of resonance is what kind of psychically drew you to her or drew her to you? Yeah, I wonder about that because sometimes uh, there's a lot of similarities in your life to what um, you actually experience even when it comes to the, um, the cases or how you come to be part of it. It's very strange. I think the universe works in mysterious ways and some, if, there's a, if you're meant to do something, then they will give it to you in a roundabout kind of way. Yeah, all the points of connection between us, all those little crumbs that you talked about before. Definitely. And sometimes it's really hard when you think about it rationally. You think, how on earth could that happen? 
people say about coincidences, but I don't think there are coincidences. I just think down here on earth we think that, but up there I'm sure that they try to lead us on a map so we can join the dots. And so, Debbie, we've talked about your involvement with a couple of high-profile police cases, but I, I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the bulk of your work is dedicated to seeing bereaved people and giving them messages of comfort from their loved ones on the other side. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. And I'm also starting to do more teaching because a lot of people are starting to awaken. And I even feel it, it's it's been going on so the last, oh, ever since I started, but it's getting more and more acceptable for this type of um, topic to be spoken about. But so many, look, everybody's born psychic. And I think a lot of us are actually wanting to explore that and learning how to work with it. And after COVID, there's been so much loss and so much time on our own. I feel a lot of people have started to think it's time to reawaken. Reawaken to what we've always been, which is a spiritual being? Definitely. And I think that's, it's almost like it's it's time to sort of get back to your roots and really, I just feel like there's something bigger out there. And I think that we're now starting to want to explore that. Yeah. So that's the thought you had as a very little girl, as did I, there's something more out there. There's something bigger. So you mentioned this awakening for humanity and I, I'd really love to just dig a little bit deeper into that with you because I've been pondering that as well and it's, it, it seems like there is something enormous happening at the moment in terms of a, a shift and up-leveling in, in consciousness. What are your thoughts around that, Debbie? Yeah, I totally agree um, that that is taking place and it seems to be getting quicker and quicker and it's, it's hard because we see that there's so much tragedy around the world at the moment, apart from COVID was a huge tragedy, but it was also, I think, a resetting or a rethinking where we started to respect one another again. I think we're getting to a point where we're becoming very selfish, but I think um, through, unfortunately, through loss, and I think people have experienced it previously through the wars, that, you know, life is just, you know, it's so important, but it's so fragile and at the blink of an eye, it can end. And I think it's more of us starting to be more connected and be more appreciative and realise, you know, going out in the gardens, lovely, looking up at the sky or even just um, just creating memories with loved ones because we don't know how long we're here for. But I also think it, it's it's nice to, to think of ways where we can connect with those that are here with us and those that have gone before us. And that's the work that's been so key for you for 31 years, as you say, Tell us a bit about what your a daily a day in the life of Debbie looks like, and maybe share one or two of the most impactful stories of connection that you've had the honour of of sharing with your clients. Okay, normally I would um I do do a bit of numerology now because I see people remotely. I don't see people in person anymore, so I will be um you know, someone will be booked in for a reading. I'll tune in to their photograph and um. It's amazing because I used to do psychometry, so I used to hold a piece of jewelry. From holding that would be like watching television, and it, the piece would just talk to me and just I would be seeing visions and things. But when I tune in remotely, I tune into the person's energy and their photograph. It's it's like the photo is a still photo. But when I'm looking at it, it's like I'm seeing all these different pictures about their life and. Like I see signs and symbols, you know, loved ones that are around them, and they'll appear to me in my room here, even though they're passed away and where the person might be on the other side of the world, but I'll be able to contact their loved ones and see them and pass the messages on. So it might be someone wants to know about their past or present. Generally, there's a lot about loved ones, but there's a lot about work and people's love life. It's all different things, but sometimes Mm -hmm. it's about people's pets. Yeah, it's all all different sorts of things, but it's uh, reading can be really quite funny. I've had some really interesting ones uh, quite a few years ago now. I, did a reading for a young lady and her friend, I didn't know at the time, but her friend was in spirit and a friend came in and sat beside her and they were only in their early 30s and her friend was sitting there, the one in spirit, and she had like a, a striped T-shirt on and a pair of jeans and I said to her girlfriend, because her girlfriend in spirit was holding her breasts and sort of pointing to them and, I, and then she said to me that she had breast cancer and she'd had a double mastectomy and I said to the lady who, you know, the living person, I said, oh, um, I have your girlfriend here and she's telling me she died of breast cancer and, you know, she had a mastectomy. And then 
unbeknownst to the lady, the living lady, her friend just ripped up a T-shirt and just showed me her breasts and showed me, look, they're back and, you know, she was joggling them around in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) I started laughing and she's saying to me, it's not very funny. My friend had breast cancer and I said, yes, I know. And when I told her what she was doing, she said, oh, my God, that would be so her. When I related to her, she said, yeah, she wants you to know that she's healed and she's back to being perfect again. And they're nice and perky. And so she thought that was quite funny. But it was it was weird because I'd never sort of seen that sort of funny side of things before. So I find if they have a really funny, cheeky sense of humour before they pass, then they, they'll still keep that with them, you know, when they go. Mm. But you see, I have some beautiful messages that come through with loved ones and, you know, people, their mum might have passed away before their child was born and then the then they'll um, talk about how they gave the child to their daughter and, you know, just different just different messages of connection and just sort of saying that, you know, that love never dies, even though physically the body dies, the soul lives on and that they're only a thought away from us really. Oh, what a beautiful message. Tell me about how you feel that your work is evolving and changing. What's, what's next for you? What do you feel like you might be stepping into? I think I'd like to do more in the teaching space. I would like to try and set a group up like uh, Find Me here in Australia, but it is very daunting and, it, and it's hard because of police forces. And, you know, each each state has different rules and I think that, it, you know, some officers believe and some don't. So it's kind of trying to really break down the barriers in that respect. I think it's more a matter of people even just teaching them how to become more connected to them themselves and their higher self and you know wanting to live I think is very important not waiting to die because a lot of the time people get quite depressed and sad and I think what we need to do is focus on creating the memories we, you know that we can while we're here because when we die that's what we're going to take with us I mean you know it's nice to have a great house and a car and to have you know holidays and things I mean the holidays are good because you've got to create memories but I think we're worrying so much about material wealth that's not going to be what you take with you. So I think it's about making making the most and sort of helping people connect and appreciate each other. And I feel that's part of my journey. I'd like to teach people more to become connected, I suppose. And just speaking of you teaching, you do have your book, which was recently re-released, Awakening Your Psychic Gifts, I think it's called. Yeah, Awakening Your Psychic Ability. A Psychic yeah. Ability. Tell us a little bit about that book. Yeah, this book's interesting. I've um, I've rewritten. It's almost like another another half, one and a half books. I wrote this book because when all of my abilities started to come to the fore, there wasn't really any books out there that that had this type of information. There was bits and pieces, but it was back then. It was classed as a cult. I remember going to a crystal shop in Cronulla, and I was asking a lady there if there's there any books, and she said she sort of. Um, pulled me over to her quite quietly and whispered, look, I'll just look out the back because you know, we don't really have them on the shelf here because, you know, it's not accepted. And um, and so it makes it, made me back then feel like I was doing something wrong because it's like, oh, if it's, you know, it's sort of a hidden thing and it was classed more as, you know, like a witchcraft or, or a cult type thing when really it's a natural gift that we all have. So what I wanted to do when I wrote this book is put all the things in there that I've learnt along the way but make it easy for people to understand. And there are, see, we have um, what's called the psychic clairs and all of us have part of them activated within us anyway. So we have, you know, they say that we have the six senses, but there's there's actually more than that with the, with the clairs. And some of them coincide with our normal, you know, our normal senses. senses that we have. Yeah, so, you know, we've got clear audience, which is clear hearing. And, you know, sometimes clear hearing if when when I was doing the clear audience when I looked that up that you know hearing voices means you've got mental health issues but that actually means that you're psychic so it was kind of a fine line when you're hearing voices because if you you know a lot of the time we might hear a voice that might just be a little gut feeling might say to slow down there's a radar up ahead or you know don't trust this person or um you know that there's something positive's coming or you might ideas pop into your head or even thoughts of a loved one that just pops into your head and gives you a little message so they're all little signs of clear audience but so if you're getting positive guidance and uplifting messages then that's not mental health issues that's actually your spirit guide or loved ones or angels talking to you you know and then when we get um 
clairvoyance can come through you know seeing spirit with your eyes it could be seeing signs and symbols with your eyes you can even get it through your dream state but you know um clairvoyance is clear seeing and we all do that at times and then we get what's called clear cognizance which is that light bulb moment that we get or that epiphany you might be thinking something and suddenly the answer comes but then we have some other rarer ones so we've got clear gustance is when we taste something so sometimes you know you might think of nana might have been passed away for the last 20 years but you know you'd go there for christmas dinner and there was a certain dessert she'd make or a gravy for the baked dinner and you'd taste that taste and then you would have that memory you know with the clear audience too with music we hear certain songs and um, when we when we hear those songs they can take us back in time or that might be a favorite song of a loved one that pops on the radio to give you a sign that they're there and then we have what's called clear tangency which is actually connected to psychometry so clear tangency is clear touch sometimes you touch something or you shake someone's hand and you kind of think oh i don't like that feeling or you might think well that person feels really you know they're nice and calm or you pick up you know you might pick up something in the second hand shop and you hold it you think oh i don't like that that's giving me the heebie jeebies you know so they're, they're senses that we all use and then we have the um we have clear sentience which is our gut feeling and clear empathy is more in our heart but when we you know that gut feeling is telling you something feels right or something doesn't feel right so all of these things we have but we probably wouldn't say that wouldn't think about it unless we were sort of delving more into it that they're actually psychic senses that are there and if we work with them and exercise them we can make, actually make them stronger oh that's great to know so that's all in your book yes definitely. yeah okay and so what would i wonder debbie if you could share a very simple way that a listener could begin today to begin to connect with their with their spiritual side their psychic side i think one of the easiest things to do is well first of all meditation's easy so you know um, doing well it's not easy it's not, not easy to still the mind but it's a, it's a nice way to sort of sit quietly take you know take 10 deep breaths counting down from 10 down to one just slowing down your breathing just sitting quietly and just asking your guides or angels what's your word for the day is or what your message is for the day you might get a sentence and just sort of see what happens it might be a word for the day and then just be alert and see whether you're driving to work or walking somewhere and you see the sign or the word pop up on a sign or you're watching television or it comes out of a song so that could be just a little tiny glimpse the other thing is getting outside in nature going for walks see if you know a feather might just appear you might see a butterfly or a rainbow or a lady beetle or now, they can be little subtle signs to say that a loved one's around you and just to remind you that you're not alone. I love those beautiful little subtle signs uh, that I see during my walks in nature. That's very lovely. And Debbie, you mentioned spirit guides and angels. And of course, you had that in your recent near-death experience, that beautiful experience of the angel lifting you up and out. Have you had any further contact from your from that angel or from any angel? Also, do you know who your spirit guide all spirit guides are. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll, I'll touch on the spirit guide first. The first spirit guide I ever had was one called Running Horse, and I'm not really into American Indians, but he was around me and he, he was really helpful in the beginning. But now I don't feel him around me as much. I feel that I don't sort of know all of their names. I, I have tried to delve a bit more into it. I, it's more like I feel them and I feel like I have a team. I actually um, have be, begun doing more, much more channeling now. So I feel like there's a collective consciousness that comes through me to give information. So I always feel them behind me. Like, for example, if I'm doing a reading for someone and I see they've got ascended masters around them, I don't always see what their guide looks like, but I will see, like, it's almost like coloured lights and each light is representative of a, a higher being. But sometimes I will see their angels or their loved ones. With the guardian angels, yes, I feel them around me all the time. I, I honestly believe if it wasn't for their protection, I would be I would be dead. I've had people come after me through working on the murder investigations. And many years ago, some people uh, forced their way into my very first book talk out at Camden. And then six weeks after that, someone broke into my office. They didn't take anything, but they were, I think they were just letting me know that they knew where I was. So that was a bit frightening. And I had some hooded men waiting for me in the car park at, at one stage as well. But again, my angels warned me that that was going to happen. So I was okay. So some of those things have been quite frightening. But I also see that they've pulled me back, you know, with different things. We'd say when you're in the car or 
you know, or even with illness, I feel that they've saved me through that. It's chilling, Debbie, to hear that you've had that danger around you because of the work that you do. And you brought up illness, and that is something that uh, I think is something interesting to touch on as well, because I know that you've had, and you've shared a little bit in our conversation today, so many health challenges. And I know that this isn't unusual for people with developed psychic abilities. Yeah, definitely. I still continue to have um, some challenges at times. And I think what it is because and it's hard being a medium in the fact that when you're connecting with people who who are deceased they've just they've, a lot of people have died from so many different sources you know with diseases or cancer or suicides you know accidents and to be able to tune in you actually make contact and sometimes you'll feel that in your body so that can be quite draining and I think too you need to be an empath to be able to make that connection so even if someone's a living person and you will feel their pain. I think the most um, important thing is to be able to clear that, and sometimes it, it, it can be harder. I have an amazing kinesiologist that I see, so he sort of helps me with that. But, yeah, I, I do feel, um, and I do know that a lot of people that do this type of work, yes, they are challenged health-wise. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people start on this journey through their near-death experiences as well. Yes, yes, and that's that's in a way been the case with you. And uh, you mentioned channeling as a recent kind of a recent development. Tell tell us about your channeling. In what form does it come? Are you writing or are you speaking and recording it? What's happening there? Yeah, all of the above. I um, I do write it, and uh, I found even when I was um, updating the Awakening Psychic Abilities book the new information that was coming through when I read it back, I was like, wow, I didn't realise I wrote that. And uh, so it, when I do write, it'll channel through me that way. I, when I've written my angel cards, again, the information sort of channeled through from the angels. They would just tell me what to write. I'd just sit there. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll open a Word document on my computer, just shut my eyes, and I will just type whatever they tell me, and then I will read back the messages. But I do have some special people in my life where, their higher beings will come through me and I will channel for them and give them messages of guidance from their spirit team. Mm. So it can be that way or I can just shut my eyes and listen to them but just record it, you know, record it on the phone then to inscribe it as well. And I wonder if there's any message that's sort of for the wider collective that you've received that you might want to share with us today. What I feel is that, that they above us just want us to try and make the most of every heartbeat and and respect and love each other and, you know, create memories because they're the the things that are going to follow us into the next life, you know. And then once we pass, those we leave behind, they will have that memory of us and we will take the memory of them with us. And I I think, you know, living for today and and try try and be mindful and and respectful of each other because, you know, they're, they're the important things. Everybody's too short with each other these days. Everybody's too busy you know, cutting people off in the car or just rushing past them and, you know, you know, and I think talking to each other physically is an important thing because we don't do that anymore. We're losing the art of that. Everything's on a text or an email. We're not, a lot of people, especially older people who aren't really into all the devices, the human voice and human touch is very important and I think that's what we need to share. Beautiful message, Debbie, and it's it's almost paradoxical, isn't it, because you work with spirits from across the veil, but really the message that they're sharing is about the importance of everyday moment with our feet on the earth today. Definitely. And I think there's a lot of things, I think a lot of spirits would say to me about the things that they wish they did when they were here. And I think that's why that's an important message um, that they want to share with the living because it's make the most of what you have and don't lament about what you don't have, you know, don't appreciate the time that you have your loved ones around you or your friends. And do you feel that this is a time where the veil is thinning? Oh, definitely, definitely. I do feel that they're around much more. There seems to be a sense of urgency and especially with, um, well, you know, we've got the war in Ukraine, the possible, well, the possibility and inevitability of war ahead of us. But even even just with, I don't know, everybody's so unhappy. I think everybody feels so anxious and worried. Everyone's worried about interest rates and money and, it's a hard time I feel that's a lot of the time that's when spirit comes closer I feel they try to come through to give people a sense of ease 
they're not all going to come come through and give you the lotto numbers. I mean, that would be great, but um, you'll probably all get five dollars if you're lucky. But I think it's, you know, I think it's more a matter of um, trying to be calm. When you're calm, and I think manifesting is something that I sort of work with. Like when I manifest things, I don't manifest that I've got a million dollars, although that would be good. But I try to manifest positive things. I think of infinite abundance. So then if you've got infinite abundance, you've got enough of everything you need. So it could be finances, but it's also happiness and joy and, you know, um, having nice people around you. And I think what they're trying to do for us is sort of prepare us and maybe um, get us to look more at our senses and, and to be alert and to be mindful of when, you know, just to, so that you can protect yourself when things are starting to go awry. Yeah, that reminds me what you've just said of how, you know, the blossoming of the spiritualism movement in, I think, the late 1800s was really in preparation for the two big world wars and what we were going to go through. You know, they were yes. a steadying, like steadying us and saying, well, you're not alone. Like, that's what I feel anyway. Oh, no, I totally agree. Totally agree with you because it, it seems that the thinning does start to happen when we're on the precipice of something big. And I think the, the thing is, 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 you know, maybe forewarned is forearmed. Well, I don't think we've learned from the previous wars because it, it looks like, you know, same things. It, it's sort of like the same, the similar sort of things are happening again. It, it's just it's just a sad uh, feeling, I'm sure, for spirit as if to say, haven't you guys learned anything from that yet? Mm, yeah. And COVID, as you said, even though it was such a, a difficult phase in our lives and in the collective, it also brought its gifts and it was about connecting and also sitting in stillness and quietness. A lot of people found opportunity, more opportunity to do that in that time. So it served a purpose as well. Yeah, I, I do I do agree with that. And I think a lot of people have said that to me. I think it made people appreciate each other more. I, I found, um, especially with the first month, the first April when it happened, I decided I was going to take a photograph of the sky every single day for the whole of April because at that time you couldn't really leave your house very, you know, I, you couldn't go very far. I could go to the end of the street. So what I did, I took a photograph from the from my backyard, or my front yard, or just at the end of the street, which is a dead end. It was phenomenal. By the end of the month, I took one every every day, whether it's night or day. I was capturing the most amazing images of angels in clouds, I was getting shooting stars, I was getting rainbows, I was just getting all of these phenomenal images and it was interesting because if that hadn't happened, it's almost like you don't always take time to look up. And I, the reason I did it, I thought, well, so many people who were in apartments, they couldn't get out, but you can always, you could look out of the window and you can always look at the sky and you know every day the sun or, you know, the sun's going to come up and, and then it'll go down and the moon will rise and it will thought if it, everything else is lost, at least you can look at that and just think, you know, that there's, there's stability in that. And if you would like to share any of your favourite photos from that time, send them to me, uh, Deb. I can um, I can share them on our on my social media. Oh, okay, thank you. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I got some little cherubs and I got a, an actual couple looking down from the clouds. I got some really unusual things and beautiful shooting stars. Oh, I'd love to see those. And I know that you have always been skilled in capturing spirits and other beings in your photos. So I would be excited to see anything that you'd like to share in that capacity, Debbie. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I have this amazing photograph. I think it's William Charles Wentworth at the back of Walkley's house. I actually got his face on my iPhone when we went to his mausoleum. Oh, well, I'd love to see that. I was, I was I was really shocked because I remember there was um, only two men on the tour because I, I ran a ghost tour on Halloween, and so there's only two men on the tour, and then everybody was over near um, the it's like a mausoleum at the back of Walkley's house where he's he's sort of um, entombed, and there's a wrought iron gate, and so you can you can put your hand through the gate and just take a photo or walk around, and I sort of left the group all there, and I sort of moved away a bit. And then I felt something in front of me, so I took a photo and then there was this man standing and he had his eyes shut and I said, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't even know you were there. I didn't think much of it and then I got home and I looked at the photo and it was like this man with a suit on with a cravat on in his um, pocket and there was no nobody dressed like that on the tour and then when I found a photograph of what he looked like or like a painting of what he looked like, I put them together and it was him. 
So he was coming to check me out, see what we're doing. (laughs) That's amazing, Debbie. I love all these stories. And as we approach the end of our conversation, I wonder if you have uh, a final uplifting message that you'd like to share. It could be for anybody who's grieving the loss of a loved one today, or it could be just a greater message of positivity for, for all of us. I think the most important thing to remember is that, you know, when, when we do lose a loved one, it, it's never goodbye. It's always till we meet again. And they will pop in and out of your life while you are still here. So just be aware of the subtle signs, you know, and symbols that you get. And if you do hear them talking to you, it's not because you're going crazy. It's because you're getting voices from the other side and messages of love. Thank you so much, Debbie. It's been such a joy to reconnect with you today. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the Spirit Sisters podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. I just love talking to you. You are a living angel too. You know that. Oh, Debbie, thank you so much. It's so lovely of you to say. Oh, my pleasure. It's true though. Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate and review the show. Have an experience you'd like to share with me? Get in touch at my website, karinamachado.com, or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story.